Well, welcome to the third episode of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I'm Charles Cook. I'm sitting across from Kevin Williamson. And it really should have been the fourth episode, but we missed one on Friday because you were out playing Hollywood in Los Angeles uh, doing something that you've done before and I've done once, which is uh, being on the awful, odious, detestable Bill Maher show. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting about your uh, appearance there on Friday was this accusation that you live in some sort of right-wing bubble that you never hear opposing points of view, which seems to me statistically impossible. What do you think about that? Well, that was uh, quite a lot of the emails that I got suggested this. Uh, and and I, I couldn't help but laugh because I thought, well, I'm British. I was raised in England. I spent 26 years in England, uh, which is not a um, right-wing American conservative sort of place, as, as Steve Coogan noted on the show. And I flew 2,600 miles in order to face five people, all of whom basically thought the same thing and disagreed with me, and uh, an audience that's, I don't know, 300, 500 strong, all of whom seem to think precisely the same things as Bill Maher does too. So that's really some bubble <laughs> right there. And you work in New York. And, and you, I live in a blue state. Yeah, a very blue state. A very blue state. So it was, it was you and Maher and Rachel Maddow. And, and the British actor Steve Coogan, who oh, plays right. Alan Partridge and is in Philomena, the, the new movie. And then Michelle Alexander, uh, who is a professor who wrote a book called The New Jim Crow, which, although I disagree with much of what she says in terms of the intent of the drug laws and so on, I do think she has a reasonable point to make about the consequences of those drug laws, which are you can often take somebody who is innocent of nothing more than, say, possessing marijuana, uh, and you can ruin their life by removing forever their, their vote, um, their firearms permit, and, m and maybe even the capacity to get a job. So why do conservatives like us go out of our way to spend time with people who hate us and hate everything that we stand for? And, uh, and, and these shows are sort of detestable experiences, you know. Uh, one of the things I particularly object to in the way Bill Maher does his show is that the most outrageous stuff is sort of held for the end after you've been cut off and, and can't respond to it. Is it worth it to, to conservatives to engage in this, or are we just enabling these jerks? No, I think it's always worth it, even if it can be a difficult experience sitting in that one chair that is reserved for pariahs. Um, you know, people. I, I got some tweets and they said, well, why did you go on because they cut you off or you know, you're the only one who doesn't agree with them? Well, I went on because I'm the only one who doesn't agree with them. And for people who watch the show, it's important to have somebody saying, hey, I don't agree with you. And especially given that look, Bill Maher and his, and his audience and his guests are totally entitled to their opinions. That's, it's a free country. What I object to slightly is the notion that those are the only opinions that count or that those are the only opinions that real people have. And, and it struck me being on the show, even talking about the minimum wage, you know, the minimum wage is not a, an open and shut case. And I, I sat there for 15 minutes trying to explain that there are an awful lot of people and an awful lot of economists and an awful lot of history that shows that this might not be the best idea. And just saying, well, this is the moral thing to do, for example, doesn't make it so. And if there's nobody to do that, what are you going to do? They're just going to sit there and agree with one another and people will walk away thinking that nobody disagrees. Well, they do. Yeah, I think we seem like Martians to them a lot of the times. In, liberals never notice liberal pop culture for the same reason that fish never notice water. It's just that they've never been anywhere else, they've never experienced anything else, and when they hear an idea that is uh, 
something different from what they got in school, what they've got from the New York Times their whole lives, what they've got from the major television networks and everything they've ever read, it's, it's shocking to them. And what's always surprising to me is that, you know, you've got Fox News, you've got National Review, you've got National Review Online, you've got four or five conservative book publishing houses and some other magazines and things like that. Uh, but to this day, it's rare for me to encounter someone on the left who actually has even a sort of elementary understanding of what it is that conservatives actually believe about things. And it's so weird that, you know, I get all the time, well, um, <clears throat> if you really cared about poor people, you wouldn't think this or that. Um, when I, I, I've written endlessly about the, uh, you know, issue of poverty, yeah. maybe you think I'm wrong about it, but uh, it's a different thing from not caring about it. Well, and, and the other thing on that, um, you know, the number of, of times that people say, well, why are you in favor of corporate welfare? And you say, well, I'm not. Yeah. I mean, you know, I self-identify uh, as a libertarian. I'm conservative in some ways. And also this idea that, you know, oh, well, you, you're just some sort of normal, you know, like straight down the line Republican. Well, not really. For a start, I used to have very different political views than I do now. I didn't grow up in some sort of right-wing cocoon. And secondly, you know, and Kevin, you, you show a lot of these. I'm a, you know, anti-droning people who are U.S. citizens, anti-drug war. I personally, I'm an atheist, and I'm fine with gay marriage. But I'm also reasonably conservative on uh, cultural issues. I'm pro-life, and I'm economically libertarian. That's that's not really a normal position to take. It's not like, oh, one of those again. And yet those things always become blunted in the conversation because they pick on the one thing, the minimum wage, and you must be a racist, poor-hating, you know, whatever. Right. I don't think either one of us are Republicans, actually, are we? No, absolutely yeah. not. Uh, but speaking of that, why do you hate gay people in Kansas so much <laughs> is uh, another thing that I want to get to. Because even though you claim to be in favor of gay marriage... I, uh, I have it on good grounds that you're, you're in favor of discriminating against gay couples in Kansas when it comes to uh, who bakes in their cakes. Or are you? Am I wrong well, about this? Well, no, I suppose... Uh, how shall I pause it? This is where I guess... I am not in favor of discriminating against anyone in the same way as I'm not in favor of any sort of hideous racial speech. I am not, however, in favor of the government preventing everything that is horrific preventing everything that is unpleasant. And so I'm of the view, and yes, it applies to race as well, that business owners should be able to deny people service for whatever reason they wish, whether that's a good reason or a bad reason. Yeah, I read about this on Friday, and the, and the question I put out there, which no one's really come up with a good answer for, is, uh, you know, say you're a, a gay-owned restaurant in Chelsea here in Manhattan, and you've got a rainbow flag flying out front, and you're a member of the U.S. Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce and the Westboro Baptist Church knuckleheads come in and decide they want to rent your party room for their annual God Hates Fags fundraiser and pardon the language but that is their motto uh, we might have to bleep that um, should you be allowed to deny them service even though this is you know discrimination on religious grounds is technically against the law uh, but hell yes you should be allowed to deny them service I mean why should you be forced to rent out your party room to these repugnant SOBs. And, uh, but if you're going to have that, then it follows, I think, that if you're a you know, fundamentalist, evangelical, conservative, Catholic, whatever, Mormon, baker in Kansas, and someone says, we want you to cater our same-sex wedding, and you say, well, I wish you the very best, but no, I'm not going to do this, maybe it's wrong, uh, but it shouldn't be a crime. And you know, my thinking on this is that... Um, we have unfortunately overgeneralized from the African-American experience in the 1950s and 1960s, which was unique in American history. There was nothing else 
quite like that. Right. And though I have mixed feelings about, say, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, something pretty clearly had to be done at that point. It was probably something that was going to have to be federal. But the situation of gay Americans in 2014, while there are mean people and knuckleheads and bigots and such out there, is not very much like the situation of people who had been held in slavery for a few centuries and systematically oppressed for a century on top of that. It's just not really well, comparable. And I think these are the sort of things that can be worked out in civil society. Absolutely. And that's one reason why using Jim Crow, for example, in this area is... is uh, is inappropriate. The other reason that it's inappropriate is that the Jim Crow laws generally mandated segregation and oppression. What this says is you own that business, you can make your decision, and you can live with the consequences of that decision, which is key here. Because how long do we think a business is going to last if it starts putting no gay signs up on the door? The national media will descend in 12 seconds. We have mechanisms to deal with this sort of thing. What you don't want to do is to get rid of a problem that doesn't exist, which is the widespread discrimination in services against gays, to force people to violate their consciences just so that they can run a business. And I, I support any law that says that people can choose for themselves. That's what this is. It's being mis miscast, but that's what this is. Yeah, and I generally think that it's healthier for society if these things get worked out on a person-to-person -person basis, on a civil society basis, rather than being imposed by the courts or imposed by the legislature simply because it provides less occasion for resentment and bitterness. If you really want to take your ideas out into the public arena and you lose in a fair fight and you know there's a gay boycott of your business and it hurts, then, uh, then I think you've learned something. And it's a different sort of experience from having a guy in a black robe come in and say, it shall be thus, and you have no, no choice in it. And so I think that's ultimately a, a healthier, healthier way to live. But, you know, this is not something that Bill Maher will ever believe that you actually believe. No. Well, I should say before I go that I'm probably one of the only people listening to this who has ever seen people turned away from an establishment for the color of their skin. In France, in the south of France, in an area that's run by the Front National, my cousin was turned away with my family. She's black. For uh, for being black, they just said we Eleanor, we will not serve her because she's black. So you know what we did? We went to the next village, we went to a different restaurant, and we had a good evening. Now that place is abhorrent, and the guy was an awful human being, but I didn't feel the need to involve uh, the courts. I didn't feel the need to involve the law, and uh, and and I'd hope that we're mature enough now to recognise, as Kevin says, that we've come a long way. And that's the lesson for today: that France is the California of Europe. Beautiful place awful people. <laughs>